I'm Scott Abraham from ABC7 in Washington, D.C. You know who it is. Travis Thomas Experience. This is Eric Edholm of Yahoo Sports. This is Mitch Tischler. This is Al Galdi, and you're listening to The Big Douglas Show. All right, this is The Big Douglas Show. Got the rapper Big Pooh with me. And our guest today is Roy Wood Jr. Roy, thanks for hopping on with us. An honor and a pleasure, gentlemen. Very excited. You know, it is my my mom watches all these because she's my mom. She doesn't care anything about sports or the entertainers that we have on. But I got to tell you, she's excited about this one because, Roy, you wrapped the season finale of the uh, Finding Your Roots. My mom loves uh, that more than anything. Genealogy, you can find her for five, six hours a day. You can find her traveling to graveyards trying to find dead people to connect with the McCray family. I'm telling you. So I know she's excited to hear about your experience uh, on that television show. That shit is wild. It's That's probably, of anything I've ever done in television, probably the most meaningful, but the most stressful. Because really? them niggas call everybody in your life, bro. They... <laughs> And they don't, this was wild. They don't tell the people who in the family they're investigating. So like, so like basically finding your roots producers, they call niggas on my dad's side who I literally haven't talked to in 30 years. Yes, uh, we're looking for pictures of Roy Wood Sr. Um, We're with a show. What's the show? We cannot disclose, but it's with the PBS. All right, well, why the fuck would I send you pictures of my goddamn family? Well, it's for a person in your family who will then have the information and the nah click. And my pop side of the family so cold-blooded, it got to the point where PBS had to call me and like, listen, would you mind reaching out to these niggas and telling them that it's you? Because we're having trouble getting pictures because it seems that you black people like to keep secrets from strangers. And I'm like, yeah, you think? All right. It was it was wild, man. The wildest shit was them finding the name of the white person that bought my as the, these are these are Henry Louis Gates words, not mine. My Kunta Kente. He tracked us back to the slave ship in Charleston, South Carolina. He found the purchase paperwork for the first person to set foot on American soil and be given the name Wood. He found that. Then he found the name of the white person who bought him. Then a stranger DM me on Facebook and go, nigga, I know the great, great granddaughter and I know where I know where Samuel Wood was buried. I can tell you the county in Georgia. You might be able to track down the relatives of that slave master. So that shit's been swirling in my head the last couple months of do you track down and then I know some brother I forget the name of the documentary and I apologize I know someone who already did that they sat down and broke bread with the ancestors of their ancestor slave masters so you know which number one goes to show that every idea in entertainment has already been done and two I just don't know how peaceful I would be you know the the other thing that I learned from that show and I guess it's something I should have known, but maybe I shouldn't have because, you know, I grew up in Alabama and Alabama public schools. They skate over slavery and for the most part in entertainment. 
slavery is presented as this big Amazon factory where it's a thousand employees and it's a motherfucker on a horse walking around all of the slaves. My ancestors were never on, they were owned by white people who never at any point owned more than like four or five black people. Like the brokest slave masters of all time. Like these motherfuckers was not balling. And like the idea that they're even within slave mastery, there's still a hierarchy of stunting. Like right. <laughs> it's a hierarchy to how many slaves? Yeah. I have four hundred. I have three. I have three. You broke bitch. Get your ass <laughs> out of here with them three slaves. <laughs> That's Even great. Wu Tang had ten people. <laughs> <laughs> like like how how do you how do you? I mean, not you personally, but like how would sitting down with ancestors of the slave master that owned your family how is that meal supposed to go i don't know (laughs) how is is that meal really supposed to go it's not for healing it ain't on some let's all fucking forgive one another i'm not trying to roll up on them and hold them accountable i'm not trying to ride for samuel wood and whoop their ass but i am curious about how is racism passed down or was Mm -hmm. it passed down are you racist like i don't even know if i would even speak to them off the top you know or are they just in denial about it yeah i don't know much about my past i don't speak about it i was say, what if they don't even really know much about their past like that's the other thing like because even even though racism is indeed passed down the book sometimes stops somewhere and it's like nah we're not going to continue this this line of thinking and so that now okay they, so who was that yeah. person who was the person because if you yeah. can't be white and enjoy we're talking about white folks in georgia by the way coming up through the 1880s till now you saw racism absolutely you saw your friends be racist so who in your house was like nah we ain't doing that and maybe it's from something that they saw, you know, in their ancestry. Um, it, it, I'm curious. I'm not convinced that it's a conversation I need to have, but I am curious. It ain't like it's not even something I would even bring cameras on. Like, I'm not trying to have some big ass Oprah, Meghan Markle interview. So tell me <laughs> about your great, great grand slave master. Like, it's not that, but there's definitely this weird curiosity about it that I didn't have before. I didn't even give a fuck. Like to tell you the truth, Doug, I didn't even want to do the show. My girl is the reason why I did it. Oh, really? My girl, man, because it was wrong of me to feel that way. I can say that now, but I definitely just never really gave a fuck. And a lot of that is just because of disdain from my pop side, because, you know, we grew up a little broken and just, you know, just I have a lot of half siblings that I'm close with. But the people on my dad's side, you know, aunts, uncles, you know, so many people died early. And then also we just never saw them. I never got taken around them. So when you never see those people and then as a kid you get older and you go well them niggas wasn't checking for me either so i don't give a fuck where y'all came from i'm good 
the folks I know is who I know, and that's what I need to know. How but long then, was that process, Roy? For the show? Yeah. Uh, about a year and a half. Oh, damn. For okay. sure a year before we shot. You do the DNA, and then they just start talking to folks. They find out as much as they can on paper from people, and then they just go through public records city by city, day by day, and start sifting through everything. I don't know if it's quicker than that or not because, you know, my episode was shot during COVID. So, you know, a lot of the records that they find, that shit is at libraries. They have to go get the microfilms from Card Catalog and Dewey Decimal. The shit ain't on Google. So mm-hmm. to find the purchase manifest in South Carolina, you first have to find the death certificate. Or the Like a lot of that show is them finding marriage certificates and marriage, birth, and death certificates are the paper trail that essentially connects you to your past. If you can find any one of those three things on that is the name of the fathers, of the, the parents of the people. And so by tr- finding the next parental name, you try to find marriage, birth, or death of those people. And on any of those three forms is the parents. Of the, so that's how they keep backtracking and backtracking and backtracking. But all three of those forms could be anywhere in America. And so it's just meticulous and have them places that have it. I imagine the clothes for COVID. But, you know, ancestry.com on steroids, ain't it? Bro, this shit is like (laughs) some meticulous detective work. Like, you got to find the Roy Wood, and then you got to find every Roy Wood that was born in Atlanta, every Roy Wood in Atlanta from this time to this time that lived at this. Oh, also voter, voter registration cards. Like that's that was another way. Well, now, once black people were allowed to vote, but yeah, it was, it was, it was very, very eye-opening. And like, if nothing else, my son gonna get a fucking A on any family tree project. <laughs> he ain't got sure. to do nothing. He just got to play that episode in the classroom and be like, "Bitch, I know everything." <laughs> my family tree is already done. Here you go. Literally, <laughs> it's literally done all the way back to the slave ship. Every single person accounted for name, date, death, the whole while. He don't like, he don't even need to do that. They gave it to me as a poster. I could put it on his wall tomorrow if I wanted to. I am at some point because I want him to know, you know, his lineage and his history. I think it is very important because even if I don't really care about it, he might. And I also think that so much black trauma just don't get discussed because niggas don't want to sit down and have a heavy conversation with they self or with they people that you just avoid so much stuff and it never gets passed down you know and that's why there's so many question marks that's why we got all these health issues as a cult you won't even tell nobody how so and so died you just say he going to god and that's that's facts because i i'm literally at the big age of 41 I'm just finding out how my grandfather really passed, how, you know, just the things like, you know, I didn't know he he died of colon cancer. I thought it was something else, which was uh-huh. is important as a 41 year old black man, because, yeah. <laughs> you know, I just so happened to have to go get a colonoscopy for other reasons. But just finding that out and I was like, oh, I should have been did this. Like, yeah. you know, it's like, yo, man, you got to you got to communicate, bro. You got to tell people what the hell is going on. And I think that's that's probably 
the most important thing about it. But I mean, anybody, I don't want to say anybody could do it, but it is meticulous, but it can be done. It's not like they call in some secret Illuminati registry and finding out all this shit. Everything that they do on finding your roots is public record. You just need the tenacity and the patience to go through all of these records and, you know, from time to time travel to some state county clerk office to find a marriage certificate from the 1920s and then tie that to something else from the 1800s and then go through line by line slave purchase orders in a particular county. Like the paperwork is all there. That's why I like when like white people be talking, well, I, we didn't talk about that much. Yeah, but that stuff is well documented. Like there's not a lot of erase, there's not a lot of erasure of your history. It's just not discussed maybe, but there's plenty of paperwork. Like the fact that somebody heard the name of the great, great, great slave master and knew their four descendants and knew where those people was buried and know that the daughter is still breathing as we speak. That says a lot. This says a lot. <laughs> it says a lot. And that person ain't even in the family. This nigga is a neighbor of the real, like it's some three degrees separation. <laughs> so, so he got the story. Yeah, <laughs> my <laughs> uncle used to live next door to the nigga that owned your great great. So if you want to know about your great great, go to this cemetery and that person's buried there and the descendants of that person, they still live in Georgia. So you can go find them. That's insane. I kind of just want to, if I find them and they broke, I'm going to leave them alone. I do know that much. Because <laughs> I'd be like, all right, that's karma. That's good. <laughs> you got yours. Yeah. You roll you up on the descendant of a slave master and they live in broke. I'm like, all right. All right, that guy. That's a good, appreciate that. <laughs> well, you also got the job fair you've been doing. I checked a couple of those out. They're hilarious. Got me thinking. When uh, I was in college, I worked my way through moving furniture. I don't know if you ever known like real furniture movers, mm-hmm. like the guys that wake up every morning, smoke a L, drink a, a Blue Bull, and then move. Oh, 20, y'all doing 000, corporate? Y'all twenty thousand pounds of yeah, twenty thousand pounds of furniture later with a hump strap carry furniture on your back. Those guys do it every day. No. It's, it's a wild. It's a totally different like group. Uh, I never. So- I had two strict policies on work. And this is because I did it and I know I never do it again. Nothing in the office and nothing physically strenuous. Like I could work outside and I could work around food. Those were my two. Like pretty much everything I did was food because I could eat for free in college. But moving furniture, bro, no. no. It was rough. It paid well, but. Uh, it's a unique it's a unique village of people that are no, career furniture movers. Movers were making twenty an hour when minimum wage was still like fucking five seventy five. It it's a dollar per hundred pounds. All right. So if you if you show up in the morning and catch you a big truck, fifteen, sixteen thousand pounds on it, you just cleared hundred and fifty bucks cash, no taxes on it. Uh Jeez. so it, it depends on what you're willing to get out there. And, do. and they was like, paying the them like there. drug dealers. <laughs> yes. Now there were hustling. Like some people wanted a dollar and a quarter an hour. You know what I mean? Some <laughs> some drivers some drivers be like, listen, man, I only got 75 cent an hour. 
And it's or a hundred is like now nah, we know you got from the company enough to pay a full dollar a hundred. So you know when I found out when I found out movers was expensive is when I moved to LA. Like I never had an opinion about illegal immigration and day labor until I called two men in a truck <laughs> and them niggas gave me that quote. Two motherfuckers to drive my shit from Birmingham to LA. Man, I went to U-Haul. And then I pulled up on Lorna Road in Birmingham. That's what I don't know if it's I don't think it's like that anymore now, but that's where the Mexicans used to post up. And I pulled up to that bitch. I said, move? They said, see. I said, bet. And they loaded my truck in an hour and a half, if that. And I still two men in the truck. Yeah, still too many truck, but it was like fifteen an hour. They was carrying couches. None of this is wrapped. It ain't padded. It's uninsured. This shit is sliding around like a fucking margarita in the bed. Like I'm on the freeway. Every time I change lanes, I can just hear my shit. <laughs> my shit was broke when I got to L.A., but I saved some fucking money, bro. It was worth it. It was worth it. That's crazy. Well, I, I always wanted to ask you, because I enjoyed the series thoroughly, um, when you did your own chicken chicken sandwich war series, man. <laughs> Listen. The coalition. I, 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 I never thought that would be as entertaining as it ended up being. <laughs> when I tell you, like, because cause Fonte put me on to it. He's like, yo, you need to check this out. So when I started watching, I was like, yo, he really captured the essence of what this shit is for real. Like, <laughs> like wh what made you decide to do that? So for the people who don't know, The Coalition was basically a crime drama where every character was a chicken sandwich from a various fast food restaurant. And it was a tweet, bro. So I can't remember if I tweeted it or somebody tweeted it where basically when the Popeye's chicken sandwich first came on the scene, when it first came on the scene, like fall 2019. And I was like, yo, these are the fast food spots got to be shook. This is like the wire when the new nigga came in with better product. And whenever a dope dealer come in, whenever new dope hits the market, all the other dope dealers is like, fuck what we gonna do to take this nigga out? They get together like a coalition. And then in my head, I was like, that would be funny if there was a fucking meeting of all the fast food companies. What would that look like? You know, it'd be funnier if it was chicken sandwiches. And at the time I was on the road and I had access to, you know, like I live in New York. So there isn't but so many fast food spots. But at the time I was in the Midwest, I was like, all right, fuck it. I'm finna go to rallies. I'm gonna get a chicken sandwich. I'm gonna go to McDonald's. I'm gonna go to Wendy's. I mean, the only place I couldn't find was fucking Kentucky Fried Chicken. That's why it didn't show up until episode nine because it took me a long time to to get to. <laughs> and I bought these sandwiches, and originally I was trying to do like stop motion, and I was just bored. Like it was just it was like two weeks off from the Daily Show. And my girl comes in the house one day and I'm on the ground with a white castle and a jack-in-the-box. And 
I'm like, yeah, fuck it. This is going to be funny. We're going to have a little chicken meeting at the table. And they're going to plot on what they're going to do about Popeyes. And it was just, it was supposed to be a parody of the New Jack City scene after the Carter got raided. Mm. And Nino Brown is pacing back and forth at the table and going, don't nobody know nothing? Don't nobody know nothing? Popeyes just came in here and took over the game? Checkers. You don't know nothing? Checkers don't know nothing, huh? What about Burger King? What about, and so I just did one. It made me laugh. People wanted more, and I still had the wrappers. So I just went and bought butt naked hamburger buns to like add a little volume to the packaging. Mm-hmm. And I just started doing them. And it just became this thing where I had to write out the scripts, but they couldn't be more than two minutes because I just felt like this don't need to be more than two minutes. And I would write an episode and I'll go, oh, it'd be funny if it was this. Oh, you know what would really be funny? Is if you added this sandwich. Oh, yeah. Let me call this nigga in Chicago, see if he can send me a rapper from Harold's Fried Chicken. Because it'd be dope if we had Harold's Fried Chicken. Then I got booked. This is around the same time when I got booked on Better Call Saul, which shoots in Albuquerque. And so on the West Coast, now I got access to Jack in the Box. Now I got access to Carl's Jr. So now I'm like, fuck it. We're going to make a whole. Now we got Whataburger. That's West Coast. That's, you know, Texas on West. Mm-hmm. I go, fuck it. We're going to have some villains who are the less popular chickens. The ones you forgot about. The forgotten. Yeah. Now, And it just fucking spiraled, bro. And I knew it was something I would never get sponsored. I knew it was something nobody would ever buy because it's an advertising nightmare because everybody's logo is in that shit but I don't care. Like it was, it just made me laugh. And like, that was the first thing in a long time where I felt like I got to do something strictly because it made me laugh. And there was no network putting input into it or giving opinion, like none of that shit. I was like, chicken sandwiches acting like chicken sandwiches is the fucking dope game is funny. And I'm just going to follow the headlines like Dick Wolf and Whatever happened in real life, I'm gonna that's just put that shit. They go into, into the, the store. Yeah, that's going into the story, and so I ended up. I can't remember what happened. I know it was right before the COVID shutdown, and I was trying to get serious about this film I had to write. And I was like, if I'm not careful, I'll just keep doing coalitions for no reason. And then my girl just came in one day. I shot like 15 episodes of this shit, and she's like, "What is the end game with this?" And I'm like, "I don't know." I don't know. It's just fun. It it makes me like like this is therapeutic. But it, the editing and the graphics, it, it was it was starting to intrude a little bit upon things that I imagine could pay the bills. <laughs> but from a creativity standpoint, I was like, fuck it. I still might run it back. I just got to get on the other side of this tour. Um, but it, it, I don't know. That's just where it came from, man. Like it was just one little quick thing that just snowballed into a 15 episode web series of just talking sandwiches. It was brilliant. <laughs> it was brilliant. <laughs> I got to put an ending on part two at some point. <laughs> at is least. It, is it harder now with comedy in the landscape we're in? Does it, does it make you more cautious or, or worrisome when you do certain things? I'm more worried about people not giving comics a space to suck in order to get good. 
you got to cross the line a little bit to know where the line is. And I know some comedians are, shout out to Charlie Murphy, habitual line steppers. But for me, like comedy, it's the only, well, it's, I don't want to say only, it's one of the few art forms that's created in front of the consumer. You know, so it's, but people expect it to be perfection. And it can't be that. And I have to get your feedback to know. So that's a little more difficult. But I think on the other side of that, it's more rewarding if you can still stick the landing. You just got to be crafty about how you. All right, I give you an example of a bit that I'm I'm trying to work out now on stage. I'm going to tell you the thesis. The, the thesis of the bit is is that black people, we have the wrong white allies. We have white allies, but they're vegans and they don't believe in guns. And these aren't the white allies you need. Like, like these are the white allies for if it's bureaucracy. But if it's time to go to the fucking streets for our, like if a race war started tomorrow, these are not the white allies you need. You need a couple of them niggas that stormed the Capitol on your team. And we don't have that. And so it's an exploration into that. But then I'm trying to go into how the Asian hate crime bill, right? So, you know, there's been a wave of hate crimes against, you know, people in the Asian, in our Asian community, Pacific American, et cetera, et cetera, community. And within two months, there was an anti-Asian hate crime bill law passed immediately. So, motherfucker, who did that for the Asians? That's who black people need because we need rights. We need laws changed. So if you want to be a good white ally, go get us a couple of Asians because clearly they know what they're doing. Y'all over here bullshitting. And marching with us. Stop marching with me, motherfucker. Go get the law changed. So that's the thesis statement of the bit, right? I have to be careful in how I word that so that it doesn't sound like I'm disrespecting the Asian community because I'm not. That's not the intention. But there's been a couple of nights on stage where I didn't word that bitch quite the right way, but I needed those nights to learn exactly. All right, here's how you say, here's how you told the line, because I do want I want to juggle dynamite. I want you to feel like I might say the wrong this. Where is he going with this? Oh, no. He said Asian hate crime. Oh, my goodness. Where where is he going with this? Mm. Oh, no, I wouldn't have dared said. Oh, <laughs> I agree. And so that's the yo-yo that I like to, you know, if you if it's if it's a mel- that's the melody of my material that I like to do. So if this was 2004, I'd have a lot more flex. But now, you know, you have to try and tiptoe a little bit because, you know, comedians can complain about you can't say nothing and it can't the culture, man. Okay, well, what you going to do about it, nigga? You're not going to change the ideology of the people. So how are you going to adjust? Or are you going to adjust at all? I just know that 
complaining and bitching about it ain't going to change public ideology. You're not going to chastise people into thinking a certain way. So, yeah, this is the environment you have to fucking develop in. You know, I do a new joke night in New York City now and we bag up phones because you niggas don't understand that this is a new joke and it's not my finalized, finished, polished thought and opinion on this topic. I just need a forum to to rough draft this and people often don't want to give you that space or they give you that they make you think you're getting that space and then they post the fucking video and then that's what becomes representative of your ideologies for the rest of your life and that's fucked up yeah, and this show sold out immediately right yeah that that was a little shocking we're gonna run it back in june for a couple of shows but I mean, it's only 30 seats by design. I don't I didn't want to do all of this shit in front of 150, 200 people for the first time. Let's get a nice little little focus group. It's 30 people that pay. And then I usually have like five, 10 of my friends that I like that I think have enough level of intellect and understanding that they know that this is all experiential and that we're just trying stuff. And then it becomes a safe place for other comedians to come through and do stuff, which is what I also want. You know, I just think the way that we, if anything, that's been my biggest adjustment is how and where I do the new material. Like I don't really like right now, New York is back open. I think 60% capacity. I still don't fuck with the regular comedy clubs in the city yet. Because I just, hmm, uh, let me do my shit on the rooftop and in a weird basement for a little while. Make sure this shit right. Because niggas that come to a regular comedy club, they're still expecting this regular polished thing that I don't think is realistic. Roy, can you talk about what happens or or how fast you know you have bombed that night Ooh. um because like comedy is one of them it's one of them art forms where there's nowhere to hide there's nowhere to run it's you <laughs> by yourself and everybody's looking at you and i'm and and like how like when you know when you can feel the ship going down like what is your response? Like, how, first, how do you know? How fast do you know? And then what is your response to, to something like that? You know within three jokes. If it's like a regular, like, let's say I'm doing a 15-minute set. The first two jokes don't hit, you'll call an audible on the third joke. Whatever you had scripted in your head is your run of show. You toss that out. And now you're looking for a joke just to, I call it the defibrillator. Mm. So two shit jokes and then you got to get out the paddles so you hit them with the paddles and if that don't work your audience is dead now the question becomes do you want to dig deeper into this hole and then the it becomes fun because you are bombing and you let the audience know you're bombing and you try your best to throw the show off the rails because you're sucking and you acknowledge that or you fucking try your best to pull yourself out of it and then just tell yourself in nine minutes, I'll be in my happy place in an Uber. 
and I don't ever have to see these people again. The thing that gets me through a bomb is knowing that no one's going to remember. Like, Mm -hmm. even if somebody saw me and I sucked and they remembered that they saw me and I sucked, they're not going to be able to tell you what. No one... No one remembers their worst. No one has a worst favorite comedian. You know, you just, you just know I saw him a couple of times and he ain't funny. All right, that's fine. I can deal with that. It's once you get past that as a performer, like I would, I would argue, bro, that comedians have it better than rappers because you, you niggas, you can't change your song. Oh no! Once it's out there, it's out there. It's it's there. You're in the first (laughs) verse, and you still got two more verses to go, nigga. And their hands are not in the air. And and you have four more fucking songs. (laughs) (laughs) Now, 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 I have college college bombs are the worst though. I have cut a song when I saw the response wasn't what I like. (laughs) I turned around to the DJ. (laughs) <laughs> or hit that one, one figure. That'd be one verse, baby. Can turn this shit off after one. This is not the one. Just <laughs> that's how y'all be communicating with each other. Oh yeah, you gotta hit them with the slash. You gotta throw that finger up. You gotta, you gotta have them, gotta have them nonverbal cues uh, uh, when you're on stage. Just so because you know when, when you're up there, you're still well. At least I am. I'm still monitoring how people are responding and I can feel the energy if there is any. And if I don't feel any on a particular song, I exit out of that song immediately. I don't play no games. I'm not going, continuing on. So you ain't going to force them to hear the next three verses. No. Well, first I never do three verses of a song on stage. Anyway, I run my, I run my sets like a mixtape. You get a verse in the hook and we out. <laughs> like you get two verses on the single. <laughs> like, but it, it's you. You still have to monitor that because, like, as a musician, if you're bombing, if it's just not your night, some like a lot of times you're you have that time frame and it's typically at least thirty minutes, and it's just like if you if you know this ain't your night and like within five minutes. Hey, you just gotta go down with the ship. Like Yeah. You gotta yeah. <laughs> like if we gonna bomb, we gonna bomb. It's gonna be the most spectacular bomb in the history of bombing. The other play is to attack the crowd and you go like um fuck the um what was the Bill Burr at the Opian Anthony in Philadelphia. It's a legendary bomb. There's video of it on YouTube where the audience had booed everybody the entire night. And as a com- that's the other thing as a comedian. You have to do your time to get your check. You cannot come off stage early. If you come off so much as a minute early, these motherfuckers love to hold you in breach and not pay you. So Bill Burr had to do 10 minutes. And he came out and tried to do a joke. They booed. He cursed the audience out, looked at his watch, announced he had nine more minutes to let them know he wasn't going anywhere. They booed even more. He starts attacking the audience for how shitty they've been to the other comedians. Looks at his watch. Eight minutes. Then starts trashing the city of Philadelphia. Like, just just systematically fuck you people and here's why. Here's why one. Here's why two. 
six minutes. Here's why four, here's why five, three minutes. And by the end of it, had them on his side. And that's just acknowledging the bomb. It's literally the only, it, it was the only play he had in that moment was to literally attack the souls of those people to try and survive. And he did. And it's fucking, it's, it's one of the best bombs I've ever seen. It's better than what I did on the Apollo. <laughs> which, which you doing Apollo, Roy? You know, you know uh, yeah. we, we gotta go. We gotta go YouTube it. Oh, we gotta go. No, Google it's it. not this before YouTube. You fuck. Oh, this can't is... find my shit. This was two thousand two, nigga. You got to find the VHS. <laughs> Only me and Ben Hill got that shit. Microfiche. <laughs> yeah, you gotta go and find your roots, nigga. And they got the <laughs> <laughs> Henry Louis Gates. Got a Henry Louis Gates. Hey, you got that footage of boy at the Apollo in two thousand two? I know you got yo. it. Yo, they asked me to send footage of me from when I was a younger comedian. I sent them nothing but quality sets. I'm like, y'all ain't getting my trash shit from 98. <laughs> so, like, the Apollo, what's fucked up about the Apollo, at least back then, what they don't tell you is that they block shoot the show. And they shoot multiple episodes in one night with one crowd with one crowd they shoot usually three episodes three and so it's 40 minutes out of an hour so it's 40 and 40 i don't know let's say it's about a two-hour rip the drinks at the apollo theater this is 2002 i can't speak to anything now mixed beverages at the apollo mixed vodka with well but still vodka whiskey gin three dollars a pop Ooh, three dollars a pop Ooh. in harlem that's on purpose <laughs> so the first thing they did and my stupid ass this is my first television appearance was the apollo my stupid ass thought that they shoot the show in the order that it comes on tv you know steve harvey well it was rudy rush at that point steve had, was doing the sitcom at that point you know, Rudy Rush come out. Hey, y'all, jokey joke. It's time for amateur night. All right, time for a musical guest. All right, time for the comedian. Because at that point at the Apollo, they had separated the comedians from amateur night, thank God. And it was called Comedy TKO, where two comedians went out and do three minutes and the crowd decides, you know, who lives or who dies. I get to the Apollo at seven o'clock and I see the line out front and it's free admission. I didn't know this. <laughs> it's free admission and it's $3 mixed drinks. And then I go backstage and the producer, Ben Hill, shout out to Ben Hill for even giving a nigga a chance. Ben Hill goes, okay, Roy, here's the rundown. We're gonna do all the musical acts first. Then we're going to do all three runs of Amateur Night. Then we're going to do all three runs of Apollo Kids. And then we'll do all the comedians. So it's seven o'clock, bro. Niggas are drinking $3 mixed drinks. A well liquor. Well liquor. <laughs> if I remember correctly, the musical guests in order, and each guest does two songs. It's P. Diddy and the Family. It's DMX. 
and it was Ja Rule. Oh, man. In 2002, oh, they were going up. On $3 <laughs> mixed drinks. <laughs> we're going up. <laughs> so they see six New Yorkers in peak New York. DMX is probably the only one that's not peak. He's starting on the other side into the acting and all of that other shit or whatever. But they still went up for X. His catalog was still fucking solid. So this place is in a fucking frenzy, bro. It's a frenzy. Then they roll out the amateurs. And I'm sitting backstage and I go, oh, that's how you set niggas up to get booed. Because they've been drinking $3 mixed drinks since 7 o'clock. And now it's 8.15. And you're just shitting on niggas' dreams one by one as they come out. Then they bring the kids out as a fucking chaser. So it calms niggas down. And now you can't yell for about 20 minutes because you've been watching these kids and you got to be nice. Then they bring out the fucking monkey mouth ass comedians. <laughs> and knowing what I know now as a producer, I get why. I get why they stack the show that way. You need the music to get the crowd hyped so that the amateur night people come up to an audience that's already awakened and lively. You can't put the comedians next because it's kids. It's fucking nine o'clock at night. You got to get the kids to fuck home. So the kids got to go next. So at that point, it's comedians, bro. And I went on stage, a show that started at seven, I probably didn't get on stage till about nine o'clock. Them motherfuckers was so drunk, bro. And they fucking booed. They, they booed, like the boos were starting. I'm supposed to do three minutes. I stopped at two minutes, 37 seconds. I did like you did. I cut my own last joke and I walked the fuck off the stage. And as I'm walking off the stage, I said, thank y'all, I'm Roy Wood Jr., that's my time. I just fucking ran like a fucking coward. And as I'm coming off stage, Ben Hill is standing on the side of the stage looking at me, and he goes, stay out there, you've got more time. You've got more time. And I went, no, sir. <laughs> no, I don't. No, I'm good. My time been over two minutes ago. <laughs> so as I walk past, Rudy Rush comes past to go back on the stage. I hear the producer yell at Rudy, stretch for 40 seconds, please. We need a 40-second stretch. I'm like, fuck him. He the host. Handle it, host. Go stretch. That shit was so terrible, but so eye-opening, bro. It was so eye-opening. And the thing that's really dope about the Apollo, this other thing that I wish more people knew about that space, is that at least at that time, when they do amateur night, every amateur is in the same green room area that's really not that bigger than an average church fellowship hall. About the size of a footlocker is probably the best way to describe that area. It's not small, but it ain't huge. But it's too, it, like, if you have five amateurs per show, and you're taping three, that's 15 acts. And a lot of these acts are three, four people, dancers. Then you have all of these kids. Then you have all these kids. So it's literally just a room full of people embarking on their dream. And it's probably one of the most supportive spaces I've ever set foot in. Like 
whether you get booed or not, when you come back downstairs in the green room, everybody claps for you. Mm-hmm. Like, that was some shit I just never, like, just, because every boo before that was in Atlanta at Uptown, and you get booed, and then fucking Nard Holston goes on stage and talks shit about you, the earthquake comes on stage after you, like, like, booed so bad where, like, three comedians after you, they're still talking about you. Like, that type of shit. So to go from that to actually to actual support, I was like, all right, that was cool. And then I fucking got in my Ford Focus and drove back to Elizabeth, New Jersey, <laughs> fucking cried in the car. <laughs> Roy, the opposite of that is when you realize this thing was going to work out for you. I'm curious if there was like a set or a time where you're like, yeah, okay, I think maybe this is going to happen. Mm. Paying my own bills was pretty cool. That was like 03, 04 money, though. I was still living local. My rent, I had a little townhouse. I was paying 575 a month. Um, I'd say, okay, I'd say 06. There was a 12-month stretch where I did Letterman and Def Jam in the same year. And so I was like, well, it can't get no whiter than that. And it can't get no blacker than that. Okay. Maybe there's something to my style. Because that was originally what I've been trying to do stylistically was talk about me in a way that was unique enough that it connects with whoever. And so like, that was the first time where I was like, Oh, okay. All right, I figured this out. In 06, that was the year I got an agent, too. So I was kind of all high on my head and like, ooh, I know what the fuck I'm doing now. Um, But no. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's it. You know why, though? Because the paranoia of failure just never leaves. So even now, I'm at a place career-wise that I could have never fucking imagined in 1998. But there's still a piece of me that goes, don't you fuck this up, motherfucker, because you know. You know it's going to be back to working at Golden Corral. How'd you end up with the Daily Show in 15, right? Did Trevor, he came in the same time as Trevor, he brought you in? Yeah, Trevor brought me in. Nah, nah, nah. They were looking for new niggas and Neil Brennan. Uh, shout out to Neil Brennan, Chappelle show. He threw my name in the hat. And at the time, I was also doing a lot of shit on ESPN. I was really adrift that year, low key, because I was on a sitcom on TBS that had just got canceled. And so I was having trouble booking shit in L.A. Like I couldn't really book, you know, much of anything. And I fucking look up. And the next thing I know. I'm just working the road and I'm not getting any opportunities. But then Daily Show comes along and my degree is in broadcast. I've done more than enough fucking. um, I've done more than enough like weird ESPN stuff that those things all worked in concert to help me get the audition. Like that was something that, you know, I'm forever thankful for. But I mean, bro, I was. Like, it's weird because sports is really not that different from politics. You could piss off a lot of people if you say the wrong thing. So you got to tiptoe 
around how you say it and you don't want to piss off the sponsors you don't want to piss off the players i honestly i think sports is a tougher it's tougher than politics as a comedian to figure out a way that makes people laugh that also keeps you employed and so that was it so i got the audition and i i was <laughs> nigga i was opening for wendy williams at the time when i got the call Wendy was doing this comedy tour, like a one-woman storytelling situation or whatever. And I go to Wendy. I'm like, hey. And you know, you don't be wanting to ask no favors of your butt. Because, like, this is the type of shit niggas get fired for on tour. When you leave the tour to go have a dream. (laughs) Hey, Wendy, is it okay if I take tomorrow off to go and audition who are you auditioning for it's a terrible windy wish who are you auditioning for it's uh the daily show trevor noah is good oh i love trevor tell trevor to come be on my show and i'll let you audition i go yes ma'am and she just does this okay <laughs> <laughs> and so i took a day off from the tour to go audition booked that hole and came right back <laughs> came right back on tour so you know that was if anything i would say that doug i think is that bro like when i got the daily show that was like the that moment of oh okay everything i've done up until this point was preparing me for this got it and now you're interviewing lawyers that thing was hilarious the other day Yo, how did how did he how did he take that? Was he uh, was he surprised or I mean, he had to kind of have some kind of idea what the premise was, right? Most people that we talk to on the show, we just let them know, look, I'm going to say some wild shit. I'm the one that's going to look crazy, not you. Just spit your truth. And that's it. Right. Like, I'm not here to make you look crazy. Like, even when we talk to like Trump supporters or anti-vaxxers and shit like that, just tell me what you believe. I may have questions. But within that conversation is the funny. I'm not trying to make you look bad. Like I think you can find humor in anything, man. And that's the one thing I give Trevor credit for too, is that he don't back down from no topics. You know, you're talking to a dude that sued Chevron for poisoning the Amazon River. This dude is, it's not really funny. It's a lot of fucked up shit happening in Ecuador, but you don't joke on the pain you joke on the people that are stopping the progress or denying the medicine to fix the wound you know what i mean like that's like the joke isn't on the patient the joke is on how inefficient and how terrible the doctors are and so that's kind of how we kind of do like it's the same thing with chicago gun violence we walk in the block in the south side with cats that's going through some real shit and gang interrupters that are like straight up intervening in street beefs better than the police and i go to trevor yeah i think that'll be funny can i walk the south side with these brothers and you know we really sat and blocked out what we wanted to do but we also even within that piece like when we was on the block with these cats we had to get permission to come up the block with the cameras like the shit is serious because I mean, yeah, I'm black and yeah, I'm with black people and we got a black crew, but 
that camera has betrayed black people for a very long time. And you're talking about pointing that shit at people and having jokes when the truth is I just wanted to have conversations because all I was trying to show is that there are black people who care about black on black crime because that's the first thing people love to bitch about. So that was the whole point of the piece. Then the comedy is not from any conversation we have with anybody on the stoop. The comedy is rooted in the fact that the city cut funding, even though statistics show that when ceasefire stop violence is present in a particular zip code, violence goes down. So it's it's exploring that part of the game that I've always found interesting. And I never was able to find the right outlets for that until I got on The Daily Show. And, you know, my stand up was starting to evolve in something into something that was a little bit more opinionated too. So I'm just thankful, man. Like, that's probably a point where I felt like, okay, this job is right for me. Yeah, I had done enough journalistic shit and I give a fuck enough about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I can do this. The only thing I wish I could take back, I wish I had taken some improv classes. I was supposed to take some improv classes and then book the tour with Wendy Williams. Then while I was on tour with her, booked The Daily Show and had to leave L.A. <laughs> so, you know, that's how the I, game go. I think that's the genius of not just The Daily Show, but what you do on The Daily Show is that you know there's care. You know there's sincerity. You know there's real issues. Yes, there's humor, but you're also bringing the tension to real issues amongst the human humor is how you may reel some people in but once you're in you get that medicine it's like i'm yeah. getting the medicine and i think that's the genius in, in, in what you and y'all do over at the daily show man i appreciate it man that's all we've been trying to do bro is just sprinkle in some laughs in the middle of some wild shit the thing that's frustrating man if it's one thing that's frustrating about this job is because it's a, and let me say this tastefully, because it's an American-based show, I almost said an America first show. <laughs> you don't want to say America first. <laughs> because it's a U.S.-based show, we tend to skew towards U.S. issues. We talk about stuff that's going on in the world. We don't ignore that. We also have a global edition that only airs overseas for people that are dealing with their shit, you know, overseas. Um, but the thing that's frustrating is only having 30 minutes to really get in on stuff. And it's it's new tragedies on a regular like them, like those be the hardest DMs to read. If I'm going to be 100, it's you know, I don't care nothing about somebody going, yes, I want to sponsor. Does your channel need a sponsor? Here's one hundred dollars. I hate it when people message me about stuff that I know we don't have the real estate for on the show yet. You know, you could name eight, nine different things that are happening outside the U.S. that I go, yeah, that's something worth covering. But then I also know Viacom is not going to clear a correspondent to go travel there to actually, you know, have a conversation about the issue. So, you know, that part of it is a little disappointing, but, you know, you just do what you can. Absolutely. Well, we, we'd be remiss if we let you get out of here 
without asking something about sports. Oh, shit. Okay. Roy, you're a baseball man, correct? Correct. Through and your team is the? Chicago Cubs. How? That's what I was. That's what I was trying to figure out. Because generally, How? in that area, in that time yeah. frame, it was Braves all the way down there. Right? How you end up in all Chicago right. for so, the Cubs, no less? Yeah, like I said, they weren't even good when you must have become a sports fan. Oh, they were trash in the eighties. No, here's the thing, though: the Cubs were trash, Sandberg. but the Cubs had a better eighties than the Braves statistically. Better eighties, yes, that's true. Eighty-four, eighty-nine. They went to the pennant. They didn't win, but they were in the, you know, in LCS. So it boils down to the cable package that we had at the house. Cubs games came on during the day, one o'clock. And Braves games came on at 7.30, I think, maybe 8. I feel like 7.30 on, on TBS. We only had one TV in the house with a cable box. See, back in the day, young people, <laughs> you might have four TVs, but only one TV had all the channels. The other TVs was just for local shit and watching Family Matters and, you know, sitcoms and shit. So I would come home from school about 3.30, 4 o'clock, and if I wanted to watch baseball, the Cubs were on. So that's what I watched. They were already on. I could never watch the Braves because they came on at night. And by that time, my pops was home and he ain't giving up the TV. My daddy worked hard, bro. He worked hard. So if he was home, it's his remote. And my pops don't really fuck with baseball like that. So it's that. And then it was also uh, back in the 50s and the early 60s when my father was still a journalist in Chicago he did a radio show with Ernie Banks. Mm. So he never, also the fact that that was allowed back in the day is some wild shit. That, could you imagine an active black athlete teaming up with any black journalist today and they just talking about real world shit once a week? Ain't like, happening. There's not a chance. Like athletes barely be tweeting about an issue. Ernie Banks was sitting in a chair for two hours and taking calls. Talking to strangers. Ernie Banks, what you think about the ride and the thing and Dr. King and Mark Malcolm? Like, on a regular basis, bro. So, it's part that, but it really just boils down to that's what the fuck was on TV. And you could root for the Braves, but you ain't gonna never watch them because my daddy gotta watch Hunter and he ain't giving up the remote. I will say Wrigley Field is one of the prettiest ballparks I've ever been to. Um, shout out to my guy Marlon Bird, um, <laughs> former former MLB player. I, I've I've been to Ball a few. Yep, and uh, I, I got a chance to go to Wrigley Field, and and that was that was special for me. It was. It is one of the cathedrals, the hundred years or older, as I call them, Wrigley Dodger Stadium, and uh, well, Dodger's not a hundo, but it's like seventy. Uh, Wrigley, Dodger Stadium, and Fenway. Fenway's there, the hundo. Um, them seats was all made before double cheeseburgers, though. Like, we used to be skinny as a culture in the 1920s. Oh, yeah. yeah it wasn't a lot of chunky folk, because them seats they got, them the same seats from 19 Prohibition. 
<laughs> it's it's fucking ridiculous. Um, it's just I don't know. I've always enjoyed baseball. It's peaceful. It's something that it's it's how I like to live my life. I like to be alone, but with other people. Understandable. And that's what baseball is. It's an individual sport that you play together. No one yeah. can. You have to catch the ball. You have to hit the ball. And you just do your job. And whatever happens after that is out of your control. Where basketball, yeah, I guess it's similar, but I don't know. There's just such an individuality and isolation to baseball that I've always liked. But then you go back to the dugout and get to talk to your friends. And, oh, shit, nigga, I'll see y'all later. I got to go stand out in the grass for 30 minutes. <laughs> dugout is the break room. <laughs> yeah. That's the break room, and the field is the your position at the plant. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yo. That's what it is. It's like working at the plant. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I'm going to put the screws in. That's you all put I the seat in. <laughs> then you put the stern wheel in. Then that's, that's it. That's it. My job is just to put in the screws. That's it. I play yep. left field. Don't talk to me about nothing else. I can't help you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, but Roy, man, we thank you for your time. We appreciate we we glad we finally got to do do the do the pod with you, man. Just let the people know where they can find you online, what cities you coming to next, where they can get them tickets yeah. at. I'm um it's uh Roywoodjr.com is the website. Um I think I got Philly and then I got a gang of shit coming up in August. Um Baltimore, Sacramento, San Francisco, Raleigh, um Tacoma, I'll be all over the place, man. But more importantly, um, my podcast, Roy's Job Fair. Just check that out. All we do is talk shit about shitty jobs. <laughs> I got to come on there. I, I've had about 11 jobs in my lifetime, so I, I definitely got to come over there and talk about a few. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm going to get you on, man. Indeed. Indeed. Once again, thank you, Roy. We appreciate you, man. Have a have a good rest of your day, and keep on, keep on, uh, keep on keeping on. Indeed, man. All right, y'all. Thank you, Ryan. Right. Appreciate you. Yeah, man. Peace.